The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Here you are. BPMs high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue panting. You're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Aw, I mean, just look at the little guy. Water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. She's like, I need to tell you something really important about And I said, well, what is it? What's going on? Is everything okay? Did something happen with his job? You know, is he all right? I had him blocked before this on Facebook once he wasn't talking to me anymore. My main goal was to go on there and unblock him because I wanted to look at his pictures. I go to look him up and there he is. But then there's this other profile and it was really hard to see the image on it. And I click on it and it's just one picture. And I just had that gut feeling again. I'm like, something isn't right. The date it says that the account was started or the first post or whatever was July 2021. So around a month after he died. And I'm like, okay, but he's dead. So who is this? Is this a joke? Is this supposed to be funny? Is somebody trying to play a game? Welcome to The First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Phoenix. I'm sitting here with Alexis Linkletter. How are we feeling this lovely Wednesday, Lex? Wow, I'm feeling good. I'm moving and, gro- <laughs> I'm moving and grooving. Obviously, I'm doing quite well, but no, I've had a long day. Um, I'm going to pull it together for all of you, though. Don't worry. We always pull it together. Before we start our episode, I wanted to remind everybody, if you're listening, if you've been listening to The First Degree for a while and you have a connection to a story and you've never written in, please write us. No story is too small or insignificant. We read through them all. Uh, So you can email us, hello at thefirstdegreepodcast.com. We are always looking for new stories to tell. Not only that, I want to kind of tell everybody the process. I mean, doing and participating in this podcast, it just literally requires a phone call with me. I'm a really easy person to talk to. Everybody always seems to enjoy it. Everyone's like, can we keep in touch? I'm like, absolutely. I know. And we do. Being friends with everybody. (laughs) Kind of. Yeah. But I got to tell you, I have very moving conversations with every single person who's ever participated in this podcast. Sometimes there are tears. Sometimes there's laughter. But usually people feel really great after these conversations and almost always, I mean, always, we've never had someone despise their episode or dislike it. We have an amazing track record in that way. We do the interviews ourselves so that we can kind of read what you want to get out of it. 
And I really feel like it's beneficial to people who are trying to process something too. So keep an open mind and definitely reach out if you've been considering it because it's worth it. And listeners appreciate your experiences. Like there's always someone going through something similar. Absolutely. Um, I feel like it's just a cathartic experience for a lot of people because a lot of times people haven't really gotten to tell their story uh, that have been connected to something or in a way that like gets it completely off their chest. So yeah. And we take care of all of our guests. Definitely. And you know, one more thing, it's like one of my favorite books, I gave it to Jack. I don't think I ever got it back was Victor Frankl's. It's called Man's Search for Meaning. Mm. And his big thing is, you know, finding meaning in your suffering, finding meaning in your painful experiences. And I think there is meaning in every experience, good or bad, right? And in these bad experiences that we see in true crime, I just, I just feel like the meaning you can find is, is sharing and maybe touching somebody who's listening. So we'll leave it with that as far as setting the stories, but that's truly how we feel about it. And every single one means the world to us. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Also, if you are not a member of our Patreon, please join us over there. We have lots of bonus content for you over there. Those are not listener-based. They Well, they're listener-recommended. Uh, We're taking yes. all of your cases that you want us to cover. Obviously, there's not a first-degree interview, so we can kind of pick whatever we want. And bonus episodes every single week over there and video and all that good stuff. Absolutely. All right. Well, do you want to get into the day today? Yeah, if there's a good one. It's Wednesday, July 12th. It is Etch-A-Sketch Day. Mm. That's kind of cool. Pretty cute. Don't hate that. National Eat Your Jello Day. I don't no. know why it's not just Jello Day. And uh, Simplicity Day. All right. Well, kind of a disappointing day selection, but <laughs> we'll just, you know, that's okay. They can't all be winners. They can't all be winners. You know, everybody is... They're, everybody is getting over the July 4th week and it's, you know, getting back into the swing of things. Right. Well, that is enough of that. So let's turn down the lights. And turn up your anxiety. Because this could be you. We know sudden deaths can be so shocking that everyone in a victim's life is left in a state of complete and utter disbelief. But sometimes, when someone is ripped away from you without explanation, amidst the maelstrom of grief, things can seem confusing. The details, the hows, and the whys don't click together or make sense. And for centuries, there have been people that have taken a drastic step of faking their own death. And this is also known as pseudocide in order to start a new life for any number of reasons, whether this be for their own safety, for financial reasons like insurance fraud, or to go on the lam. In the fantasy of escaping the daily grind permanently without consequence can sometimes seem pretty appealing depending on your particular circumstances. But how often does this actually happen? And how many people successfully get away with it only to be found out years later? And what about the people left behind who have difficulty processing what's happened? How often do grieving loved ones entertain the possibility of suicide as a coping mechanism, unable to accept that someone close to them has passed? And how often is it feasible that suicide really may have occurred? 
So we begin today's case on June 14th of 2021. And just as we were hoping the worst of the global pandemic was over, the crisis continued as new variants of the virus placed a crushing burden on healthcare systems and economies worldwide. And meanwhile, the residents of the state of Maine were fighting a battle with Mother Nature in the form of brown tail moths, an invasive species of caterpillar with poisonous hairs causing breathing problems and painful rashes, with the hairs remaining toxic for up to three years. I've never heard of this before. I think the combination of words, poisonous hairs, is like the most terrifying thing I've ever heard. The wrinkle in my brain is not one I wanted. No. On a much less terrifying note... Korean superstar boy band BTS was enjoying their fourth week in the number one spot on the Billboard charts with Butter, followed by the number two Olivia Rodrigo with Good For You. And at the movies, theater goers were buying up tickets to see the sci-fi horror flick A Quiet Place Part 2 with Emily Blunt and Lin-Manuel Miranda's feel-good musical In the Heights. That Lin-Manuel, man. We just can't get rid of that guy. The setting for today's case is Green Bay, Wisconsin. Situated at the mouth of the Fox River and Brown City in the northeast of the state, the city of around 107,000 people is about 135 miles northeast of Madison and is the third largest city on the western shore of Lake Michigan. The city is known as a major industrial and manufacturing center, home to paper mills, meatpacking plants, and the National Railroad Museum. Green Bay is the smallest U.S. city to have a professional American team in the NFL, Go Packers, and is the perfect place to sample some of the country's best cheeses. Sign me up with Wisconsin known and referred to as America's Dairyland. Our first degree for today's case is named Stephanie, who, like many Green Bay residents, once worked in the local manufacturing industry. And it was at one factory around 2015 where Stephanie met and started dating a 32-year-old who we're going to call Alex. So we actually met at work. I was on day shift. He was on night shift. And we were just working and things, and I didn't really know who he was. But, you know, getting ready to leave, and we have to give our shift exchange to the other crew. He'd walk past me because he was a team lead, so he'd have to go meet with the other team lead. And I'm just, you know, at the bottom of the totem pole. I'm a new temporary worker there. But he'd always look at me. And I was like, why is he looking at me? And I asked one of the guys, and they were like, well, why don't you go talk to And so I sent him a message on Facebook Messenger, and he's like, hey, do you want to go to dinner sometime? And I was like, sure. And we hung out, and we talked. And then we went back to his house, and I didn't go home that night. Alex was kind, funny, and goofy, always wanting to make people laugh. He just had this endearing way about him that Stephanie couldn't help but fall in love with. He was very funny all the time. He loved to make people laugh and people loved to be around him because he just was a good time. And you never knew what he was going to say or when he was going to say it. He'd really surprise you. So instead of saying, I'm going to bed, he'd say, I'm going to the grave, like I'm going to sleep. Or if he'd say, I'm going home, he'd say, I'm going back to my lair He had his own, like, language, and only the people that truly know him would know what he's talking about. This is just the way that he was, and he had this contagious laugh, and he would send me sometimes some really funny pictures. He was at work one night, and this is years before we broke up, and he had, I guess, in his pocket or something, one of the kids' little Ninja Turtle fake glasses, And he took a selfie with him on while he's at work. I'm like, what are you doing? And he's like, don't I look hot? (laughs) 
Alex had grown up 115 miles away in Merrill and was one of two sons. He eventually moved to Green Bay, where he made a solid group of friends and developed a reputation in his machine operator job as an exceptionally hard worker. At one stage before meeting Stephanie, he was married, but that relationship obviously didn't work out. Alex was a family-oriented guy, but loved nothing more than getting outside, whether it be indulging in his passion for fishing or supporting his beloved Green Bay Packers at any opportunity. Also an animal lover, Alex was devoted to his four cats who he really adored. Alex was super close to his mom and they spoke pretty regularly. She remarried after splitting with Alex's dad, but visited when she could given she was caring for Alex's stepdad. They had a very good relationship, but his mom never left home much unless it was a holiday or a birthday. She would drive up here from Merrill and spoil us all. So she didn't really visit much, but she talked to him on the phone all the time. They would text all the time. And if he ever needed any shoulder to cry on or an ear to listen to, he would call her. He had a very rough childhood and he clung to her very hard because that was his safe person when he was growing up. Alex and Stephanie's relationship got more serious and they eventually became engaged. Like the good guy he was, Alex jumped in with both feet and basically took over as the father figure role for Stephanie's two young kids from previous relationships. I have kids and he helped me pretty much raise them from when they were in pull-ups and diapers. And that was pretty much the, the dad that they knew. You know, one of my sons, he has his father in his life full time, but my other son, his dad has been incarcerated pretty much his whole life. So was that father figure for him. He helped me potty train both of them. He taught my oldest how to fish. He helped him learn how to ride a bike. Both my kids have special needs and he helped me through a lot of those main struggles that mainstream parents don't have with toddlers where you have a nonverbal autistic child with a speech delay it's learning how to talk because they just got tubes put in their ears. And I have this partner who doesn't have to be here and isn't their biological father, but wants to be a father figure. But about five years later, Stephanie and Alex's relationship became strained. Alex just wasn't showing up for Stephanie emotionally the way that he had before or the way that she needed. I just got tired of the same conversations and the same me needing more from him and not getting what I needed. And it got to the point where I felt like I was losing a battle here. Like it wasn't ever going to get better. At that point, he was so checked out from the relationship and everything. And I felt like he was just giving up on me and him. Stephanie decided to move out of the home that they shared to see if Alex would realize what he was taking for granted. I thought, if I moved out, that he might see, hey, I might not be here. So if you want to be with me, you have to make an effort. And when I moved out, I would see him on his weekend off, which was every two weeks. And I would sleep over there and bring the kids over there. And we'd stay over there all weekend with him. But that was it. And I felt like there was minimal effort and he would not argue with me, but he'd more like defend himself and say, no, I want to be with you. But then he wouldn't 
show me that he did, and I would try to talk to him, and he wouldn't respond. Despite their breakup, Alex continued to help co-parent Stephanie's sons, but by early 2021, he seemed to be slowly fading out of their lives. It was painful, but as Alex wasn't the boy's biological father, Stephanie understood this was just part of the process, and it was kind of his right to do so if that's what he wanted. Plus, Alex had his own stuff going on too. So Alex needed to have significant and urgent maintenance work on his apartment, and this meant that he and his four cats had to suddenly move out. But two of the cats were taken away because Alex wasn't meant to have that many in the apartment, and this really upset him. We were still co-parenting with my kids. He would come over and see them. We were still talking, but eventually I would call and he wouldn't answer, and I kind of got the feeling like, okay, well, you know, we've broken up. He wasn't obligated to parent them. So for him to not want to do that anymore, potentially, that was up to him. And I needed to accept that. Both getting on with their lives, Stephanie hadn't spoken to Alex for a couple of months when one day in June of 2021, Stephanie was driving when she got a phone call. On the line, it was Alex's aunt. I was bringing my children to their summer program that they go to in the morning during the day. My phone rang and I answered the phone in the car and it was aunt. And I didn't know her very well. I only met her a couple of times. And she said, Steph, I have to tell you something important. And I was like, I mean, I'm kind of in a hurry. I want to get home. I I need to sleep for work. And she's like, no, I, I don't think you understand. You need to pull over right now so I can tell you something important. And I could hear in her voice that she's like this is serious so i pulled over i turned the car off and she's like i need to tell you something really important about and i said well what is it what's going on is everything okay did something happen with his job you know is he all right and she says he's dead Stephanie couldn't believe what she was hearing. I sat there for a minute and I'm like, he's not dead. I was like, what what are you talking about? And she goes, Steph, he was in an accident and we don't have all the details, but he died early this morning. And I said, what? And then she said something about, you know, the car crash. As it happened, Stephanie had already heard about a car accident via social media, but she had no clue that it could have been Alex, her Alex, that was involved. At that time, I didn't put together it was the car that night that went off that bridge because I was off that night and I actually was on the Green Bay Crime Report Facebook page and I had seen that this happened. I found out later, his mom had called me and she said he drowned. And I said, well, what do you mean? His aunt told me that he was in a car accident. And she said, yes, Steph, his car went off the road near the bridge and it went into the water and he didn't get out and he drowned in the car. Stephanie was in denial until she saw a news clip of Alex's car being towed away from the water by emergency crews. The grief didn't hit me at first. At first, I was like in denial. I'm like, no, that can't be. I don't believe this. I was like, okay, maybe his family is just mad at me and they're messing with me because, you know, we had broken up and we weren't talking for the past two months when this happened. 
So then I get up and I'm I'm going to work and I saw on Fox 11 News they had a video and I believe it's still on there where they were pulling the car out of the water and I'm seeing it I'm like oh my god that's his car Police confirming in the past half hour that only one person was in the car that went into the Fox River in downtown Green Bay that person died. Our crew was in Light Park as the car was lifted out of the water early this morning. This crash happened just after midnight. After I, I had watched that video and I had seen that it was this car, then I started to believe it. And I was like, oh, wow, this is this is really happening. And um, I did a lot of silent crying at work. I was still in my probationary period there, so I didn't want to leave because I would miss work and I was, you know, single mom. I needed to be there to support my kids who had just lost a father figure in their life. As the shock and anguish set in, Stephanie was feeling something else. And she thought more about where and when the accident occurred. And she couldn't shake this feeling that there was something more to this. Things just didn't feel right. To Stephanie, even if Alex had been speeding, the rocks near the water's edge would have slowed his vehicle down and prevented it from plunging into the river. I got this kind of feeling in the pit of my stomach. It's very strange. So what was behind Stephanie's suspicion? And amongst all the turmoil, there were more things that gave her pause. And to find out what and why, you know the drill, we gotta go back. In the summer of 2021... Stephanie's world had just been turned completely upside down over the news that her 37-year-old ex-fiancé, Alex, had been killed in a single vehicle accident. Around 12 a.m. on June 14th, the Green Bay Police Department were called to a report of a vehicle in the water near the Main Street Bridge. Soon, the police, marine unit, dive team, and fire department were all on the scene. The vehicle was pulled from the river as nearby roads remained closed for several hours. And sadly, Alex was dead at the scene. The initial police theory about the accident was that Alex's vehicle was stationary, meaning parked in the parking lot, in the lot of the nearby Neville Museum, which is adjacent to the Fox River. That surprised me, actually. Like, this car was parked and slowly yeah. rolled in, which is what they're saying. And if you've seen pictures of this place, they actually, there is, like, rocks, like, jetty-sized, if you guys know what a jetty is. I don't know if yeah. people in the Midwest know what a jetty is, but it's, like, rocks that are probably about like two feet by two feet in piles that are meant to kind of control flooding and create little bays for boats and things like that. So it is odd thinking that it could be parked stationarily. But anyways, based on witness accounts that stated the car looked like it came from the museum parking lot, authorities deduced that the car jetted over the rocks and rolled into the water while Alex wasn't even driving. To Stephanie, this doesn't make any sense at all, and she'll tell you why. According to the investigation, which I have very little details about, he was parked in the Neville Museum parking lot, which is even with the water. There's no hill there. The grass is all just flat, and then there is some, like, big landscaping rock so that you don't drive into the water. And they said he must have passed out and fell asleep or something and stepped off the brake and the car just went in the water. That's what they said happened, which I, I find so baffling 
because there there are these huge rocks there, and even if he was going five miles an hour, those rocks are big enough. They're going to bump your car backwards, and if you're asleep, you're going to wake up. Even if you're not, I'm pretty sure that would you would have to see it. Comments started appearing on a post about the accident on a local incident report Facebook page, the one that Stephanie saw. People who had been listening to a police scanner at the time of the accident could hear officers on the scene describing what had occurred and what they witnessed when they arrived. I read through the comments and somebody must have seen it because they put in there, you could hear the anguish in the police officer's voice when he said, it was something along the lines of, I can't save him or it's too late or the car is sinking or I believe it was I didn't get to him fast enough. And there was more comments about it looked like someone was trying to, you know, beat the windows and the sunroof and the windshield out of the car. They were banging on the windows, you know, obviously trying to get out. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. When I was growing up, I took French in high school, but I could never get the language to stick. I wanted to be fluent so bad, but it never happened. I just couldn't focus and I couldn't practice enough and it didn't work. But thankfully, there's Rosetta Stone, which is the most trusted language learning program. And it's available on desktop or it can be used as an app on your phone or tablet. Rosetta Stone is different. It immerses you in so many ways. And with its intuitive process, you can pick up any language naturally, first with words, then phrases, and then sentences. And before you know it, boom, conversations. Plus, with Rosetta Stone's true accent feature, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the first-degree listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com first. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com first today. Okay, so it comes as no surprise that I have absolutely no idea how to cook. I don't want to learn how to cook. It's not really my thing. But when I tried Factor meals, it was a freaking game changer. So Factor's fresh, never frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Yeah, two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. So the first time I tried Factor meals, I was actually blown away because I'm like, that's it. That That's all it is. Two minutes and the meals are so delicious. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every single week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. And you can treat yourself to restaurant quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, ooh, fancy, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Like I said, they're so easy to prepare. I love them. So head to factormeals.com slash degree50 and use code degree50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next 
first month. That's code Degree50 at Factorymeals.com slash Degree50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. It's almost summer, and the best and most sustainable way to shop for a new season is on TheRealReal.com. The Real Real is the largest and most trusted source for authenticated luxury resale. It's the only place you'll find brands like Hermes, Cartier, Prada, Dior, Staud, Zimmerman, Jacquemus, and more for up to 90% off retail. 10,000 plus new arrivals land every single day from hundreds of brands you love, all authenticated by a team of in-house experts. Whether it's that perfect wedding guest look, a new summer sandal, an updated beach tote, resort wear for your summer vacation, you're bound to find exactly what you're looking for, plus deals you won't get anywhere else on therealreal.com. Visit therealreal.com and use code FIRST at checkout for 20% off. Terms apply. Following the drowning death of her ex-fiance, Alex, in a car accident in June of 2021, Stephanie spoke to Alex's best friend, and we're not going to use his real name, we're going to call him Jay. Stephanie had concerns about the police's account, so Jay went down to visit the accident site for himself. I think it was about two or three days after the accident happened, I talked to his best friend. Jay and Alex had become friends at work, and they worked at the same shift in the same factory, and they were together all the time. They were the best of friends. Me and him, we were chatting back and forth throughout the next couple of days, and he said he went down there to the accident site. And he said, well, from what they're saying happened wasn't what really happened because I can see the tire marks here where his car must have went off the road and into the water. So Jay had a very different idea about how the accident occurred. To him, the parking lot wasn't the crucial location. Rather, it was the Main Street Bridge. To him, it looked more likely that Alex's car veered off a nearby street while going quite fast and then dive-bombed into the water, missing the rocks and the grass at the bottom of the hill. And Jay explained this theory to Stephanie. So after that, they had put the big orange barrel traffic cones where they were considering the accident site. There were still faint tracks where this knoll that goes down where the bridge is, you could see tire tracks. He said it looked like he went off the road, jumped the curb, hit a tree. He thought that the tree knocked him out because of the whiplash from the, the seatbelt locking or something. And then he didn't hit the rocks because he was going so fast. He went over the rocks and into the water and the water will come up. And he thinks that's why he was banging on the windows trying to get out. So with Jay's take, Stephanie had even more questions. How could the vehicle have come to be in the water in the first place? Was this purely accidental? Or did Alex intend on taking his own life and then change his mind once he was trapped inside the vehicle, hence banging on the windows for help? Was he under the influence of something impairing his judgment? What made it more odd for Stephanie was Alex's name wasn't in any articles or reporting of the incident. They did report in that video clip that he drowned in the water. So that was in there and they did report that 
but it doesn't have his name in there. As we know, Stephanie had already found the news footage of Alex's car being pulled from the river extremely confronting. In her grief, she hoped that they'd already removed his body from the vehicle when that footage was recorded. And thankfully, we can be reassured that police dive teams generally do do this before pulling a submerged car from a body of water where someone has supposedly drowned. And Stephanie was still trying to make sense of the circumstances of the accident, especially when it came to the question of whether Alex had been under the influence. He had a prior record of a DUI and a hit and run back in 2016. And as a result of these court proceedings where he pleaded no contest, he had to pay costs in excess of 10 grand and have a paid interlock device fitted to his vehicle. He was prescribed medication, but he wasn't an abuser of things like that. And he had the interlock and kept it after his DUI because he knew if he wasn't sober, he was going to have lifelong problems in all aspects of life. And that was something he was doing to protect himself. And side note, an interlock device is the thing that you have to breathe into to get your car to even start. Yeah. So this happens when you've had several DUIs. Given the lateness of the hour when the accident occurred, fatigue could be a factor for many drivers. And if the car was stationary in a parking lot around midnight with someone inside it, then it could be fair to assume the person perhaps was asleep. But Alex worked the night shift, and this time he would have been wide awake and alert even on his days off being the night owl that he was. For him to be up at midnight driving around, nobody thought anything of that because that was normal for him. Alex couldn't have been intoxicated because he had to blow into the interlock device to even start the car. Then he had to blow into it subsequently every five minutes just to keep the vehicle running. This is how interlocks work. They work on a timer. And this made alcohol intoxication, according to Stephanie, out of the question, which makes sense. He couldn't drink because he had the DUI. So he had an interlock. I looked back and he paid his interlock that month, which meant... He was using his interlock, and it was still in the car, so he couldn't have been drinking. Stephanie had questions, but kept going through the motions of her day-to-day life. And going on autopilot is what a lot of people do following the sudden death of a loved one as they move through the complex grief process, which, as we all know, is not linear. Stephanie wasn't even sure that there was an autopsy, and she wouldn't know about it. If they had an autopsy done, I'm pretty sure they wouldn't tell me. Two days after Alex's funeral, his family held a celebration of life at one of his favorite hangout spots. But the event didn't give Stephanie any peace. In fact, it did the exact opposite, heightening the feeling of an ease that she was already experiencing around this entire thing. I go to the celebration of life, and it's at a dive bar slash campground slash like lake. It's like the most northerner thing (laughs) because everybody likes to drink on the lake and go camping and then there's a bar right there there you go it's where everybody likes to party in the north and so when I got there I see his family very small family and then I see all of these people that I don't know and I'm not talking about like 10 people I'm talking about like 50 to 100 people that I have never seen before. And I was with for five and a half years. 
I mean, I did say he was a hermit. So this is in his hometown, which is way far away from Green Bay from me. And he never went down there much. But still, I never met these people. And it was that was a red flag for me because that was weird. And then none of them talked to me. The only people that talked to me were his family members that I knew personally. And it was strange because the other red flag was when you looked at all the pictures they had up on the poster boards, because they had like five of these on easels, I'm in almost every single picture with him. And none of these people came up to me and said anything. And I didn't expect them to, you know, I didn't want them to give the impression I'm entitled and I, you know, need condolences from everybody. But it was very strange. Stephanie started wondering, what if Alex wasn't dead at all? but wanted everyone to think that he was so he could escape something. As totally wild and off the wall as that sounds, Stephanie wondered if it could be possible, especially given her questions around the circumstances of the accident. Right. So for a second, we're just going to talk a little bit about what Stephanie was suspecting, and this is called pseudocide. And it's close relative pseudocide, staging your own suicide. You know, these are two things which I think is really interesting. And I've never heard either of these words before. So I'm learning something in the episode. The question is like, how often does this happen? And why don't we hear about it that much? And does it happen more or less often than we think it does? So the reasons people, and statistically it's usually men, engage in suicide usually has to do with crippling debt, the prospect of complete financial ruin, or at the other end of the spectrum, white-collar criminals whose greed catches up with them. And other reasons would be they're facing criminal charges or a prison sentence. And when it comes to women, the catalyst is usually wanting to escape a violent or abusive relationship, which, of course, we completely empathize with. The reality is, suicide isn't as easy as the movies or TV would have us believe it is. The amount of prior and ongoing planning required is extensive. Once you've got your expertly forged documents to create your new identity and start afresh, you have to disappear with enough cash to keep you going indefinitely or until you can seamlessly transition into your new identity and make money under that assumed alias. As you can't access your own money or get money from your family, there's paper trails for all of these things. So you really have to just like sever yourself financially from your old life if you want to remain incognito. And pseudocide in the digital age is really difficult because you also can't use social media, obviously. It's a permanent decision and there are no do-overs. And because many pets are now microchipped, you can't even take your furry friends with you if you want to lay low. And on top of that, staying one step ahead of everybody is pretty much a full-time job in itself. Right. And as for staging a death in itself, it turns out that drowning would be kind of spectacular, as far as the way most people try to falsely end their lives. But I'm just pausing for a second to talk about what you see in the movies, right? Like fire, a car going over a cliff. I think all of them have to be spectacular because there has to be a reason for why there's not a body, you know? Yeah. I don't know that you couldn't stage it like where you die at home, like, cause they would come be like this, there's no body here. They're just missing. So I I think they all need to be spectacular. Like, I think that's generally how this works. Yeah. So if somebody drowns after recently taking out an astronomical life insurance policy or quickly divesting themselves of their assets, this immediately looks suspicious. And so does a sudden cremation. Right. And while that might sound doable, if you're on the run from the law, 
a life insurance company investigator or creditors, they're looking out for this. They're also like watching your loved one's activity, especially if there are beneficiaries to your life insurance policy. They're watching to see where the money collected goes. Like this is their full-time job. All these companies have investigators trained to smoke these scenarios out. And they're also looking at the loved one's communications because a lot of people can't resist the basic human desire to reconnect and reach out to people from their past, even from a payphone or a burner phone, even sending a postcard. This contact would be picked up at the other end by authorities. Like I have this crazy thing now when my mom set it up, but my mail gets scanned and sent to me. Do you have this? Oh, I don't know. I don't think so. Because every letter goes through like a scanner thing at the post office. Oh. And that's how they sift. Like the zip code you write, they use a scanning process to to yeah, sift yeah. into the proper zip code so it goes to the proper mail carrier. This all now also scans them. And if you want, you can link it up to your email account and it can go to your email. So you just see what's in your mailbox. Like if something important came Mm, and it's the same reason, it's the same reason though, like that, like federal authorities have access to this. If someone says this is like, it's the mail is federally operated. So if you're on an FBI list and you sense, and they're watching your family, they're going to see a letter show up. Like all of this is being monitored. It's really crazy. Oh, it is really crazy. Yeah. And what's also interesting though, is that suicide itself is not a crime. What people who are discovered get arrested for are charges like fraud, embezzlement, and tax evasion that were on the horizon before they even assumed a new identity. It might surprise you to learn that people who are caught faking their own death or suicides generally don't have any particular mental health conditions. However, a certain percentage of them do have something clinicians call fictitious disorder, which is feigning an illness or other life event in order to manipulate others or manipulate a situation. According to a report by CBS News, we'll never know what the success rate is for people who have faked their own death, gone on to have new identities, who continue to fly under the radar of authorities years or even decades later. Nor are statistics published about everyone who's caught, which makes sense, because insurance companies understandably don't want people to know how easy it is. Part of this difficulty is down to the way that suicide has consistently been redefined over the years. One thing for sure is that if you're going to stage your own death for whatever reason, you know there are going to be people left behind. And of course, depending on the nature of your relationship with the people in your life, a range of emotions from confusion, heartbreak, panic, ambivalence, loss, and disbelief, all the way to outrage, suddenly engulf those who are left with a ton of questions, but zero answers. And if a reported death is sudden and shocking, as most are in suicide cases, amongst the overwhelming discombobulation, confused and grieving loved ones can be thrust into a state of denial. Refusing to believe the information you have to hand is only natural to question things. Wanting to exhaust every possibility that someone could be dead by asking questions is an entirely understandable place for our brains to go. It's not outside the realm of possibility for people's coping mechanisms to lead them to believe suicide could be a factor, perhaps as a way of not wanting to accept someone they love is actually gone. And this is something Stephanie herself has considered and explicitly verbalized. Was a conspiracy possible or was this grief taking over? Maybe it's that part of grief, that stage that I'm in where I'm bargaining and I don't want 
to believe that it could have happened. But at the same time, it's like with all of the things that I have put together for this, it's just weird. Like I just have this feeling in my gut and it's weird. And I don't believe that he is really dead. In early 2023, Stephanie found herself desperately missing Alex. And as she was no longer in touch with any of his friends or his family, she wanted to go look at pictures on his social media to reflect on all of the good times she had. But when Stephanie got into Facebook, she found something that she wasn't expecting at all. I had him blocked before this on Facebook once he wasn't talking to me anymore, a couple months before he died. I blocked him because, you know, ex-boyfriend, got to get over it. Better to not see him or be around him or whatever. My main goal was to go on there and unblock him because I wanted to look at his pictures. And I was grieving and I just, I wanted to see him. I go to look him up and there he is. But then there's this other profile and it was really hard to see the image on it. So I'm like, okay, who is this? And I click on it. And it's just one picture. And I just had that gut feeling again. I'm like, something isn't right. And then I checked the date because there wasn't much on a profile. The date it says the the account was started or the first post or whatever was July 2021. So around a month after he died. And I'm like, okay, but he's dead. So who is this? Is this a joke? Is this supposed to be funny? Is somebody trying to play a game? Is it a memorial type of Facebook for him? I don't have the answer to that. I had sent a message to that account. Very mean message because I was very angry at whoever this was. That they were, you know, in my mind, pretending to be someone that I'm grieving still. And... I put it under my restricted accounts and I haven't looked at it. So I don't even know if it was read. I don't know if there's a response because I'm honestly scared to look. So with all this said, I asked Stephanie a crucial question because during our conversation, she sincerely considered that it was possible that Alex hadn't really died in that car accident. So hypothetically, why would he do this? And if it's true, how might this have unfolded? I still can't wrap my head around the whole, the whole why. I have to think of the whole picture here. You know, his world was falling apart. He did lose his apartment. He did lose his animals that he loved. I know he did when he was married, file for bankruptcy. And I don't know if maybe in his head he thought, well, I did that once and that didn't work out well for me. He had his third DUI and a hit and run, which is still open for the damages owed. He couldn't even have a credit card. I had to get a cash card for him so he could pay for his interlock from the DUI. I I can't figure it out because he was such a homebody. Like He never left his house. He would go to work and he would go home and If he had to stop and get soda or cigarettes, he would do that on his way either to work or home. He never really visited with people. And if they did, they came over to him. He was kind of like a hermit. He just never left the house. So 
I don't know if it was like something like I need a new identity because I can't, you know, even get a debit card or I just want to start over. I have no idea. In her anguish, Stephanie's mind turned to other possibilities about how Alice could still be alive and have orchestrated something so elaborate. A couple years before he died, his mom married this guy named and I don't know if he really owns but I do know that he was and probably still is one of the higher ups there. It's a million dollar company at least. I looked it up and it said net worth last year, I think, was like $15 million. They paid his car insurance. They paid his phone bill. They did take very good care of him. If he needed anything at all, they would definitely be there to help. I think there was one time where his tire went flat or something on his car and they sent him money so he could get a rental car that same day. And I'm like, okay, so if he is very high up in this company, and from what had told me about his mom and his lifestyle, they had a ridiculous amount of money, and it wouldn't be hard for her to shut the reporters down and tell the police, we don't want this investigated anymore. That's what I believe. Either stepdad or his mom could have potentially paid someone off or bought a new identity for him or however that came to be, I believe they could have. Stephanie believes that if Alex is alive, his life probably isn't much different to what it was before the accident. I don't know where exactly he would be if somebody is going to fake their own death and start over. Got to be something they're doing different. But he was always a creature of habit. He was always a homebody. He loved to work. He liked working in a factory and being a machine operator. He really enjoyed the people he worked with because those were all the people he saw, aside from his family. And I mean, I think if he did pass away and that's really truly what happened, I can definitely accept that. But who am I to say what really happened? So leaving aside the question of how and going back to why Alex would do this, we know he filed for bankruptcy when he was married. In 2016, the 10 grand judgment was made against him for the hit and run. And then you've got the additional small claims matter, which was still open. We know Alex's housing situation was tenuous and he'd suddenly lost two of his beloved animals. On top of that, we know that the cause of death was reported as drowning. The most common way suicides are carried out. And on the flip side, what reason was there for Alex not to go on the run? Like Stephanie said, he was a super family-oriented guy who was a creature of habit and loved nothing more than just chilling at home. And for somebody who loved his job and his friends so much, it's a drastic measure to up and leave forever without a word. And if Alex was concerned about debt, why couldn't he simply approach his family for financial assistance, giving their reported past generosity? It would be way less of a hassle for them to loan Alex the money rather than get tied up in a scheme where they'd no longer be in touch with him. So all of this is a lot to take in, and there's lots of moving parts here. And we wanted to see what we could find to get some answer to Stephanie's questions either way. So let's start with the bridge itself. It was built in 1929. So no doubt, that's an old ass bridge, you know, almost 100 years old. But after foundation issues were noted over the decades... In 1998, an updated bridge was reconstructed, which is the one that's in place today. 
And in terms of recent accidents aside from Alex's, in May of 2023, a 39-year-old woman drowned after her car drove off a bridge in a single vehicle accident. Back in 2020, an intoxicated 17-year-old girl driving along the bridge also hit a guardrail. And in that case, the force of the impact flung her passenger into the Fox River. But thankfully, both of them survived. So aside from those instances, it doesn't appear from what we've found that the bridge is a black spot, at least you'd hope, not given that it was reconstructed. And in terms of Stephanie's other questions, she's wondering why the small claims case is still open. In relation to this matter, at least, you'd think that if somebody dies and then any cost payable as a defendant, in this case, Alex, might not be enforceable. But what we discovered is the reason this remains open is that a debt of this nature doesn't necessarily end when a person is deceased. That liability is then transferred to the person's estate for the plaintiff to recover if there is an estate and money to be recovered. And unfortunately, we weren't able to track down the Facebook page that Stephanie told us about. But of course, there's every possibility that it could have been since deleted. Or one of those Facebooks that aren't really searchable. Right. So regrettably, we can't speak to things like Alex's autopsy report and the crash report because these documents are only available to those with a direct interest in the case, like Alex's family, his insurance company, attorneys, and the police. Because it was a single vehicle incident, this isn't necessarily considered a crime. It's considered an accident. And you're not entitled to those public records the same way you are when a crime takes place. But if, as Stephanie theorizes, Alex's family helped him fake his own death, the level of prior planning, coordination, and minimizing any paper trail around the time of the crash would be incredibly complex to successfully pull off. And this let alone continuing the charade without anybody in Alex's family ever reaching out to him and vice versa. Then there is the additional grief and hurt Stephanie would feel if she discovered Alex was alive. And this is something we actually talked about where I was trying to think like, okay, think about not wanting to let go of the idea that your loved one is dead. And I asked her and I was like, would it feel better or worse to know he was alive? She's like, so much worse, you know? So she's not chasing feeling better. You know, she's chasing a feeling because she knows it would be very personally hurtful to know that it's like, you were cool with me believing you were dead, but you're okay. You know? Yeah. Yeah. The betrayal. Absolutely. And that actually makes a lot of sense to me. You know, the loss of, I mean, I guess it would feel good to know, okay, the person's alive out of my orbit, but the betrayal of something like this would be devastating for anyone. And Steph, that's what Stephanie said too. And Stephanie acknowledges that there's things that she may likely just never know about what happened. And this is understandably both painful and frustrating for her, but she's learning to be gentle with herself through the grieving process because whatever way you look at it, Alex is no longer in her life, whether that be by choice or by the cosmic shuffling of the deck. It's the fear of the unknown, but also I'm compelled to want to know because it's, this is so strange and I don't feel like I'll be at peace until I know for sure. But maybe there is no answer. Maybe he did get in an accident and that's all that it was. It could be. I've tried to see it from both sides and be gentle with myself. But there was a short period of time where nobody could tell me anything. And I was very much that way where, no, he's alive and I can prove it. And I'm gonna convince you and you can't tell me I'm wrong. But I came to realize that wasn't healthy for me. And 
in that anger stage, I wasn't getting anywhere towards healing myself or having any positive experiences with my support system of friends and family. It, it wasn't doing me any good for me to keep going like that. So here's the thing. We don't even know about the people who are successful at faking their own death because they pulled it off successfully. And that's when Jack was talking about it earlier. She's like, we don't have statistics on people who successfully got away with it. I'm like, yeah, because everyone thinks they're dead and they got away with it. We don't know the people who got away with it. And it could be many for all we know, truly. Like those numbers don't exist. People leave the country. There's a case we covered, the William Bradford Bishop case. This guy murdered his family. He was a family annihilator. He went on the run. And people reportedly have maybe seen him in Sweden and across the world. But the belief is that he's dead. But people do get away with this. And there's a reason there's so little data. It's because they got away with it successfully. But either way, whether this was an accident or it wasn't, this whole ordeal is and continues to be extremely distressing for Stephanie. And I'm sure anyone else who finds themselves in a position like this could relate to hers. Having questions, even after everything is said to be done and dusted, is perfectly normal, yet still extremely difficult enough to deal with layered on top of so many other crushing grief factors. Grief is tough. It's brutal. It's soul-crushing. You don't come out of it on the other side as the same person you were before. Anyone grieving, regardless of where they are in this process, needs to treat themselves with kindness, with love, and with compassion no matter what. What we do know is that the impact left by those who do take the irreversible step of faking their own deaths is profound, as their loved ones who are left behind struggle to reconcile how or why suicide could possibly be the best alternative to confronting whatever issues push them to this precipice. huge thank you to Stephanie for being our first degree for this episode. If you're listening and you have a story to tell, please email us hello at the first degree podcast.com. Follow us on Instagram, join our Facebook group. We're talking true crime all the time. Join our Patreon for lots of bonus content and stick around tomorrow because we'll have a brand new episode of killing time right in your feed. That's right. And Stephanie, your vulnerability, your strength, you're killing it. We really appreciate you. And everybody listening, if you have anything similar, I mean, this is an incredible opportunity for us to learn about something new. I didn't know about suicide. Yeah. I'm guessing you guys listening didn't know. So Stephanie, thank you for bringing us this opportunity and we're thinking about you. And remember, only you can prevent serial killers. And keep your friends close, but not that close. Shout out to Jared Monaco for scoring original music for The First Degree, producing by Caitlin Cleveland, writing and research by Gemma Harris. Sources for this episode are Court Records, Green Bay Press-Gazette, WBAY Action 2 News, Fox 11, Green Bay Crime Reports, NBC 26, Reader's Digest, The FBI, A&E, CBS News, The Boston Globe, CNBC, NBC 15, Business Insider, and Psychology Today. Whew, I'm getting good at that. And as always, our First Degree guest is always our largest source.
Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply.